1: Welcome back, everyone, to Ready, Set, Go Real Estate Investing Podcast. I am your host, Mr. Brandon Elliott. I'm excited today. We got a special guest in the house, I believe visiting us from Brazil right now, which is ironic. We actually, it's not ironic. It's been several months now. (laughs) But for New Year's, me and Jennifer went down to this beautiful area in Rio de Janeiro for Brazil, got to watch the fireworks explode, and it was just an incredible experience. There's 3 million crazy people like me that was out there and i just found out that this guy was one of them so pretty exciting and just a small world that we live in but fernando what is up my friend how we do today
0: doing great brandon appreciate you having me on the show
1: yeah talk to me man anybody out there that doesn't know who you are what you're up to what you're doing where in the world you are do you mind just giving that thirty thousand foot view
0: Yeah, we're uh, self-storage developers, sponsors, wholesalers, anything having to do with self-storage, we do it. We just crossed over 220 million and we have three main strategies. One is to buy existing mom-and-pop facilities, aggregate them into larger portfolios to move up the feeding chain. On the opposite side, we build class A re-grade facilities are typically, you know, state-of-the-art three stories or more in major MSAs. And then in the middle, we have our adaptive reuse conversion strategy where we buy big box stores, convert them into storage. And then of course, any deal that doesn't make sense for us because either the size or location or what have you, we wholesale those off to other investors that fits more with their strategy.
1: That is incredible. You're a young guy, 31 years old right now. You got you read Rich Dad Poor Dad when you are 16, right? That, that was the inspiration? That's right. That's, you that, that's any- what's got me started. Did you have any friends, family, like what else inspired you? Real estate, like why real estate and how the heck did you get into this niche of storage units?
0: Yeah, it's it's actually the opposite. So I'm the son of two immigrants, Yeah, and, you know, kind of the old school American dream is what was fed to me, go to school, get good grades, get a job at a fortune 500, work for yep. 40 years and retire the pension. Then when I read rich dad, poor dad, it just completely turned that entire narrative on its head. Yep, I still went to school, got an engineering degree, but then right when I got out, went to go work for Dow Chemical and only lasted 13 months, started investing in single family flips, wholesales, rentals, then elevated up to multifamily. And then around 2016, I thought the market was going to crash in the next couple of years. So started selling off all my habitation-based real estate and then jumped into storage, bought my first facility in August of 2018. Okay. And how did you get that deal? It was an off-market deal or a pocket listing. Yeah. We started making headways in the industry, just letting everybody know who we were, that we're you know, looking to purchase. Anybody brings off-market or pocket listings or you know, improperly priced deals, let us know. And so it was a broker. He'd been in the space for something like 30 years. He called us and said, listen, you got two days and I'm listing this thing. He said, okay, we'll meet you today. So we went to the facilities, we were talking to him. He said, listen, this is the price. And if you if you try to negotiate, I'm just gonna listen. He said, okay, you know, for our first deal, it doesn't need to be a slam dunk deal. Yeah. We're gonna be learning most likely on that first deal anyway. So let's, let's just get into the field. It was yep. uh, classy, no gates, no security, no office, no utilities, it was behind a duck and donuts, about 17,000 that run. Pretty yeah. sexy, huh? Yeah. 17,000 net rentable square feet. It was 100% occupied. We bought it for a million bucks and then like three, four years later, sold it for 1.7 million.
1: 1.7, let's go. So did you stabilize it a little bit more? I know it was 100% occupied, but did you increase rents obviously to drop that percentage and so forth?
0: Yeah, not only did we increase rents substantially, we also sold it as a part of a portfolio, which allows us to compress the cap rate even further because hmm. uh, now, instead of somebody that you know typically wouldn't be interested in a seventeen thousand square foot facility, if we go to market with a two hundred or three hundred thousand square foot portfolio, then larger investors that have cheaper cost of capital have become interested and are willing to get aggressive on the cap rates that they're willing to offer.
1: That's impressive. I've never thought of it like that. yeah, that's creative that's creative financing for sure. I love that. so. Tell me about stabilizing. Like, what did you guys do to stabilize that, to increase it, to make it so much more valuable?
0: Yeah. And like I said, that was like a cross the plate type of deal. Yeah. But I could just talk in generalities. So, typically, the very first thing we look to do with these mom and pop owned deals is to shore up the expenses. What we find is they're typically paying for things that are unneeded, they're typically overpaying managers for things that can be automated. They're usually not using very sophisticated software that help with efficiencies. So we just come in and we run it like a professional outfit. Yeah. The next thing we do is we get rid of all the people that the ones that are late all the time or have are building up balances. So we immediately either get them on a payment plan, get them current, or we auction off their stuff and get good paying tenants in there. We also do competitor analysis on a frequent basis to see, okay, you know, we may be charging 80 bucks for this 10 by 10, but all of the competitors in the area are charging 120. So let's jack up our rates to 120. So we're with the middle of the pack there. That's another thing that a lot of these sellers on the mom and pop side don't really do on a, on a frequent basis. They kind of have this policy of whatever your rate was when you came in, that's your rate for life. And then wow. we're leaving a lot of money on the table. A lot. So that's, yeah. So that's the very first things that we look at. Then we start looking at things that are more capex heavy, like expanding facilities, changing out doors, changing out roofs, paving, adding keypad entry and exit, adding additional revenue streams such as five G towers, billboards, you know, Amazon boxes, U haul trucks, what what have you. I have a list of you know over twenty different type of on ancillary profit centers that you can add on top of these types of facilities. Wow. And then of course, after that, if we completely built out the site, there's no more room, then you can even potentially look at doing satellite sites where, you know, you find some acreage down the road that maybe it's a two or three minute drive from your facility. You could buy the land cheap and you could put up additional storage if the demand in the area calls for it, right? So there's a lot of strategy you can do just on an existing facility on its own.
1: What are the benefits to self storage? I mean, there's so many, right? But especially <laughs> in a recession right now, and I know them, but you know, for anybody that's just getting started or might be considering that versus, you know, single family homes or flipping or wholesaling, like why would somebody go that route?
0: First, let's talk about the asymmetric risk return profile that yeah. comes along with self storage. Okay. So there was a study done by the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts the study period started in 1994 and they updated every 4 to 5 years roughly so if you look at that period since 1994 the S&P 500 returned about 7 to 8% so that's pretty average what everybody says multifamily sure. during that time about 13% self storage average annual return 17.4% so mm-hmm. you know most people say hey i'm good with multifamily why do i need to add storage in my portfolio let's look at what that 4% compounding actually means so In the beginning of the study period, let's say you have $100,000 to invest, 1994, that'd be about a little over half a million in the S&P, 1.7 to $1.8 million in apartments. And in self-storage, that would come out to four to 4.1 million. So doubling your return over apartments because of that 4% compounding rate over that study period. Now people say, that's awesome, Fernando, return super high, that must mean it's super risky as well. And actually the opposite is true. So let's look at the last two you know, major recessions that people still kind of feel some pain about. So let's look at the 07 to 09 recession or the global financial crisis. Sure. During that time, the S&P 500 dropped 22%. There's still some portfolios today that are recovering from the losses they experienced, depending on what sector you're in in the S&P. Multifamily during that time dropped about 7%. So a little bit more resilient. Self-storage three and a half percent. And this is a study, wow. again, done by the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts. REITs are very large. They're kind of like cruise ships. They're very hard to turn when things start going the wrong way. I actually know a lot of investors that during this time, they made some of the most money they've ever made in self-storage. So yeah. that's you know a little bit farther away. Let's bring it more recent here to the pandemic. Okay. TREP, which is a commercial mortgage-backed securities research firm. They did a study that In the first three quarters of the pandemic, there were 1,700 CMBS loans made to self-storage investors. And during that time, only three were more than 30 days delinquent. That's a 0.17% delinquency rate. Wow! During that same time, multifamily on the CMBS level was defaulting at a rate of 1,800% higher, 18 times the default rate of self-storage, just to kind of show you the recession resilience. So yeah. you say, Fernando, why is that? Well, let's, let's think about it. Just, you know, let's step back a second. You lose your job or you have to move in with your parents or you have to downsize. Or you have to move cities. What are you going to do? You're going to have to put your stuff somewhere. You're going to have to store it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Most Americans are pretty materialistic. So once they buy something, they usually don't get rid of that stuff. They become hoarders. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, not in the sense of like the stuff you see on TV shows, but I mean, literally, I, I know investors of mine that they're like, Fernando, I have three storage units that I haven't gone into for 10 years. Yeah. you know, And they're not, they're not like a traditional hoarder that would go on a, you know, a TLC type TV no, show, but no, they just but don't want to get once, rid of that stuff.
1: Yeah. Once upon a time, they paid something for it. They feel emotionally attached to it. And they're like, yeah, but God, I, I don't want to sell it or get rid of it, even though I'll never, right. ever use it. Right. You know, it's crazy.
0: And so, you know, let's look at the demographics that use that. So the two largest demographics, the baby boomers and the millennials, the baby boomers are retiring and downsizing in mass, something to a clip of like 15 to 17,000 per day. Right. The largest (laughs) generational transfer of wealth is occurring right now. Oh, yeah. These people are, you know, they learned that the American dream was to buy a huge ranch in the suburbs of five bedroom but now they're empty nesters. They have grandkids, their kids move somewhere else. So they want to be closer to the grandkids. What are they doing? They're downsizing from these five bedroom, 3,000 square foot ranches, and they're moving into condos or active living communities or assisted living communities, but they're not getting rid of all their stuff, right? And then on the older edge of the generational divide on of those baby boomers, you know, you have unfortunately them passing away and their children are emotionally tied to their parents possession. So they're storing the, basically the households of their parents in these storage units to be like, I'll deal with it. Once I get over the emotional trauma yeah. of what just occurred. Right? So that's one side. On the other side, you have the millennials. who have the exact opposite tendencies. They do not want to go live in the middle of some suburb that's an hour and a half away from the major city with a a bunch of yard and a bunch of bedrooms, they're opting to live by the action they're living in the high rises above all the restaurants all the nightlife. And they're using the self storage facilities as an external closet, because instead of having maybe a 3000 square foot house, they have a 1000 square foot apartment or 1200 square foot apartment, which is pretty average for major metropolitan areas. But both of those are the two largest generations in the U.S.'s history, and they're both driving massive demand for self-storage.
1: Yeah. I also like to think, I mean, those are incredible statistics, first off, which it's just like numbers don't lie, right? We could chat all day about a bunch of things that we believe to be true, but numbers won't lie. So that's, I think, go to the facts first. I also just like, I love the idea that in a recession right now, just like you mentioned, it's like, what are people going to do? They typically downsize. They, this is the industry that's going to scale up. Like, this is going to grow. There's also just crazy type of like guidelines, depending on which state you're in for storage, but. When it comes down to, you know, if somebody doesn't pay in many states, it's like 30 days is absolute worst case scenario. That's the longest. A lot of them you can do a day, a week, 10 days or something even shorter that you can cut the lock, sell the stuff and then re-rent it the same day. Like, good to go.
0: And, and you just touched on a, a major pain point that I had yeah. when I was a multifamily investor. Right. I'm based in the Chicagoland area. You know, our tenant laws are very strong. It's like, you know, it's it's basically right behind New York City and San Francisco.
1: California. You're moving.
0: Yeah. yeah, You're moving away from that landlord tenant law and you're shifting over to lien or property law. So what does that mean? The second someone signs the contract to lease one of my storage units, they're de facto giving me a lien against their possessions. Yep. After the five-day grace period, if they still don't pay, our manager puts a red overlock on top of their unit. So they can't even get into their unit you know, in the middle of the night to pull their stuff out and not pay it, uh, the bill that's due. And then if they still don't pay that within 30 days to 45 days, depending on the state, we just sell their possessions, make our money back, and then we move that unit to a new person. So in those situations, I'm not losing anything. Now let's look at, say, a rental property. They don't pay I had situations, now this is extreme, but I had a situation where it took me eight months to evict somebody going through all the legal channels, et cetera. Let's Let's just say say California. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Let's just say it's two months. Okay. Then you have to spend a month's worth of rent to renovate the apartment. Yeah. And that's if they didn't cause a massive damage because they're pissed that, yeah, that you evicted them. And then you have to pay another month's rent to a leasing agent to place someone into that unit. Yeah, So it's, I mean, right there, one person gets evicted, you're losing five to six months or half the year's profitability on that apartment. That's ridiculous.
1: And you're covered. You are in that tough liability standpoint of covering all the expenses during that whole time. When it comes down to storage units, it's a very quick turnover, but also the liability standpoint is very low. The the remodel on it, like nobody's, you got to sweep You know, you got to maybe if that, right, there's no extra crazy fees involved for the turnovers, which is incredible. And you can do it quick, which I just love.
0: And not only is there's no crazy fees, it's actually the opposite. It's a profit center. So when an auction buyer buys the possessions, that unit, they give us a one to $200 deposit to clean it. And if they don't leave it broom swept, once they take the possessions from that unit, we get to keep that as an additional revenue source on top of that.
1: It's incredible. Yeah. It's just wild. So I think that when you can get these storage units, I think it's such an incredible time and such a, you know, the turnover, the liability standpoint, and the income that you can really generate from this. Another thing is that you can actually constantly increase the rents every other month if you wanted, correct? Like there's no... That's correct. So if you are at a 100% occupancy, that's a no-no for all investors. It means that people are too comfortable. Your prices are too low. So you want to get it to what? A 94, 96% max? L-
0: less than that, 85. Yeah. I-, I like to be in like the 87 to 92% range. Yeah, that's so um, smart. And just to talk, I mean, let's, let's talk about again how recession resilient this is. 2001, yeah. which we were like peak pandemic yeah. shutdown, right? Yep. That year, average across the entire United States, self-storage rents went up 6.7% month over month for the month entire over year.
1: Month oh over
0: month. Oh my God. In some some facilities, we experienced between 50 to 100% revenue growth it, during that period. My God. Let's talk to some of your multifamily investors and see how they did during 2021. Yeah, and we'll see kind yeah. of who does well during, yeah. during recessions, yeah. right?
1: Tell me which, prob- <laughs> yeah, come on. And that's not inflated like some BS numbers of like the stock that's market the average. hitting some. You know that's not pushing yeah. money into it. That's literally just what the market from all the craziness has done. That is a legitimate business, just incredible growth. And so you want to keep your occupancy more around that you know low 90s or or higher 80s, so that you have a strong pulse on it. You know you can keep going up on the rent. And let's just be very honest. Everybody can relate to this right now. That 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 hundred and fifty dollar bill. Most of us will get more comfortable with it, saying, "Ah, oh, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to have to." You know, it goes up ten bucks a month. You're like, "Ah, oh, it is what it is." I'm not, you know, until it gets to such a pain point. You're like, "All right, fine." But just like you mentioned, there's investors. There's people that can afford it that set it, forget it, put it on auto pay, whatever, and it's better peace of mind they'll keep it for 5 10 years and not even think about it
0: exactly so what we call this is that self storage has a very high it's sticky factor so yeah. to an example that you use let's say you have an $150 unit per month yep and we decide to raise that unit 20 bucks that month that's yep. 13% increase to the bottom line is usually not worth the 500 plus dollars to move to another facility you know take a day or two out of your time from work or the weekend rent that U-Haul truck, et cetera. Now let's look at the same type of revenue increase on a multifamily unit. 13% increase to a $1,500 a month apartment is $200 a month. Yes. That will hurt. If you raise that on someone at an apartment building, they're willing to cross the city to go to the other side of the city to find something cheaper or at the yep. same rate they were before you you raised their rent. It's true. The very high sticky factor.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. I Yeah, I'm just like, God, the more research, the more guys like you that I, I have on the podcast, I'm like, God, why am I not doing this already? It's like, it's so incredible. And I bet you it's only going to get better. I've noticed that there's a lot of these big companies out there, though, in storage that are coming around, buying up all the mom and pops. And it's predicted that they're. I think a few years ago, it was like 70% or so was mom and pops. And now it, it brought it down to like 30 or 40%. No, that's, that's not right. No. Um, oh, okay. So,
0: if you're talking about the fragmented market, here are the numbers. So, right now, the top six largest REITs own about 20% of the market.
1: 20%. That, okay.
0: Then another 10 to 12% is owned by the next 100 largest operators, which I'm a part of that. So, mom and pop operators still own around 65% of the entire market. So okay. massive opportunity for aggregation. And that's one of the, the roles that we play in kind of the feeding chain in the self-storage space. You know, we're not one of the top six, we're not even one of the top 20, but what we do is we go, those guys on the top 20, they don't have the time or the patience to deal with these small mom and pop operators. So that's where I come in and I buy them individually, package them into 20 property portfolios and then sell that portfolio to these REITs. The nice part about that is I don't even have to do anything. Just by making it a larger check size, I can compress the cap rate by one to 200 basis points or one to 2%. And then on top of that, which we do, is we'll do the value add on top of that. So now the last portfolio we just sold, 10 properties, we tripled the value of our equity on that portfolio over three years by doing this exact strategy.
1: In three years tripling. Three years. Wow, come on, Mm -hmm. come on. So how are you getting these deals?
0: Yeah. So the multi-channel marketing, basically. So number one, what we're doing here, you got to educate your market to dominate your market. So everybody knows Fernando's a storage guy. If I have a deal that I run across and I may not necessarily know how to do storage, or I'm not a storage expert, but I am an expert in say multifamily or mobile home park, I'm going to call Fernando. We're going to partner on that deal. And he's just basically going to run the show. So over 35% of the deals that we do nowadays are with OGP partners, someone that is a real estate investor, but does not have self storage experience. We have a lot of our kind of direct to seller approaches where we're marketing via letters, phone calls, driving for dollars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Virtual driving for dollars. Cause we do wholesale self storage as well. The deals that don't make sense for us. So it's the same exact type of principles. And then we have this kind of aim for the trunk, not the leaves approach where we let all of our transaction attorneys, anytime we do a deal, we always tell the other attorney, Hey, you know, if you ever have another client that's looking to sell, give us a call first. That way you don't have to deal with all of the messy issues. You know how we operate attorneys, wealth managers, title agents. I mean, people that have access to a lot of sellers, but they themselves are not sellers. So kind of that, that aim for the trunk approach.
1: Yeah. So what deals don't make sense for you guys? Like what's out of your wheelhouse?
0: Anything below 35,000 square feet nowadays is something yeah. that will automatically wholesale. It's just too small for us. Sure. And I'm not saying that that's not a good deal. It's just we're building 80 to 120,000 square foot facilities. And just for us, it no longer makes sense to do these much smaller deals. So for us, the only way that we'll even look at a deal that's you know, at 35,000 is if we're able to double the square footage that once that facility is stabilized, it's at 65,000 square feet and above. And why that number? Yeah, Because that's where we notice that the large institutional buyers get interested that have the cheap cost of capital, anything below that 60, 65,000, I'm selling to other people like me and people like me want a good deal. Yeah. Right. They want to buy below market, but the institutional capital, they want to buy at market.
1: Yep. And that's a good number to sell at. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So is there any states that you typically find yourself like, yes, I love this state. This is the location versus others like California, maybe that you're like, all right, it's hard to find a a deal here.
0: Yeah. So we actually take kind of an opposite approach. So there's only roughly 60 to 70,000 facilities in the entire United States. So I just market to all 50 states. Yeah. And then we just run it through return metrics and see which ones shake out, which ones don't. Unfortunately, we've never done a deal in California because the numbers never work. Right. Never,
1: ever work.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Where we are finding deals that the numbers work are the Midwest, the South and the Southeast. Right now, just in our development pipeline alone, I have 11 ground up class A builds in the Florida market between Tampa and Orlando. Just to kind of show you where the growth is and where the numbers make sense.
1: So, you guys are doing ground up construction. Is that a lot? Yeah, that's a lot right now. Is there, or you buy properties though that are already built out though as well, correct?
0: Correct. But you got to realize kind of where we are with this whole interest rate doubling over the last ton of 12 months, right? So, sellers are always 12 months in the past on valuation and buyers are always 12 months in the future on valuation. So, there's a two year spread there to get to a number. When we've had this high of a velocity, in change in interest rates, it's gonna take sellers a while to realize, hey, I can't sell my property at a five cap anymore because interest rates are 8%. So it will never debt service coverage. Yep. So they'll they'll just sit on it until eventually they realize they're not getting any offers at that price that they're trying to get. And then they start realizing, okay, maybe I need to sell because I have a cash need or I wanna travel or I have another investment that I wanna make and I've already reduced as much equity as I can on this deal. Yeah. So you know, before we were about, developments and 70% existing deals. And then like June hit of 2022. And then today I have close to $150 million of development in the pipeline. And I have like 10 million in acquisitions of existing properties under Mm. contract. Mm. So just kind of completely flipped because when interest rates skyrocket like this, the very first people to drop prices are land people because land is a speculative asset, doesn't produce any cash flow, So they're just like, you know what? Get out of my books. I'm Take done it. with it. Yeah. So we, we've been negotiating. So what we saw is, you know, pre-interest rates skyrocketing, there was people trying to sell us deals in Florida at a million to $2 million an acre. Yeah. And now I'm buying entire four to six acre plots for a million dollars,
1: right? Yeah. That a boy, I love it. Okay. So all of your ground up construction right now, they are in Florida.
0: No, not necessarily. That's just where the majority of it's in. So just the Southeast in general. So okay. North Carolina, South Carolina. We have one in outside the Atlanta, Georgia market. We have one in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, another one in Texas, but the majority of them are in that Tampa Orlando corridor because we see some rapid growth sure. and good job growth, income growth in that area. I think it'll weather better during the coming recession than say a Chicago or a LA or a New York.
1: Now, when it comes down to the new builds, is there a certain number of square feet that you're looking to build there versus when you're just buying it straight out? Obviously you want to try to get as much as possible, right? But what what
0: were you for? And it really depends on the market, right? How much is there currently in the market? Maybe it doesn't make sense. So like I have one that I'm building in Charlotte, North Carolina, it's it's massive. It's 111,000 net rentable square feet. The building size itself, is 150,000 gross square feet, right? In the Florida corridor, because it's growing so fast, we're going for areas that are kind of tried and true, usually parts of retail kind of commercial planned unit developments where there may be a Publix and a Starbucks and they have another outlot. The problem is these outlots are usually in only two and a half to call it five acres, where then I'm building something that the building is call it a hundred thousand gross square feet. And my efficiency is anywhere between 73 to 78%. So it's 73 to 78,000 net rentable square feet. And the reason why I I specifically say this is I don't like to build anything above three stories because the second you get onto that fourth story, your fire suppression cost becomes outrageous. So that's kind of one of our cost cutting methods where as long as we keep it below three stories, it helps with the construction cost.
1: Yeah, that was my next thing that I was going to bring up. You know, there's certain investors, usually because they have to, the necessity if they're in a city or so forth, they have to build up for what they get to make the most out of it versus, you know, going if they're in some farm area, rural area that they have some land, they're going to build out longwise. From my understanding, a lot of investors in storage are looking to build, obviously, longwise, you know, one level for the simple fact that. It is going to be a heck of a lot cheaper and liability standpoint, fire safety and so forth. But could you just shed some light on that a little bit deeper?
0: Absolutely. So let's just talk some numbers, right? For me to build a single story climate control facility, just hard cost alone, I'm at about 60 bucks a foot. Okay. Yeah. For me to build a 73 to 100,000 net rentable square foot facility, I had a single story size, I need 10 acres of land, right? For me to feel comfortable, eight to 10 acres. That's really hard to get in areas that are blowing up, right? Because now you're competing against, you know, these larger home builders that like to build out these subdivisions, things like that. So your only other option is to go super rural. But when you go super rural, the rents aren't where you want them to be. It's going to take much longer for them to get filled up. The opposite is true when you go to build these like eight story facilities like in downtown Chicago or downtown Orlando, you know, now your cost just on hard costs skyrockets to like a hundred, 120 bucks a foot, just on hard costs alone. But you are getting the massive rents that you need because there's already demand. The other piece of that equation though, is you're paying such a hefty penny for that land because there's much better uses for that land. Somebody can put up multifamily and is willing to pay way more than what you are as sure. a self storage developer. So for us, kind of the sweet spot is the kind of edge of the suburbs, not quite rural yet. I like to call these areas the exurbs, right? You look in one direction, you see a bunch of houses, you look in another direction, maybe like five miles down the road, you see some farms, that type of stuff. Because I know once I'm done building and I'm done stabilizing that asset, I'm going to be completely landlocked by houses built by J.R. Horton or, you know, one of these large home builders. So that's where we look to build. And I like to build three story facilities because then not only am I an area that I can get much smaller square footage, you know, two and a half to five acres and still make it work. But my build costs on the hard cost side is like 84 to 87 bucks a foot, which means I can still make a ton of profit. I usually double my investors money during that five year time building that type of product.
1: Yes, that's another thing. So the build cost typically is right around that eighty-four, eighty-seven dollar range per square foot, correct?
0: Right now, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was a lot cheaper about two years ago, but things have changed.
1: <laughs> it was all it was all good back in the day. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Also, when it comes down to, you know, you have more experience in this, but from my understanding, when you have a three level or, or higher storage facility you know, say you just start beginning renting it out as a brand new construction. You actually want to rent out the top units first and and start staggering it. That first level is more expensive and so forth. And, you know, because the higher it is up in the corner where it's more difficult to get to, it just gives more and more incentives, more reasoning behind why they are not going to, you know, pull it out the next month. It's more of a pain.
0: Yeah. So we actually will let the customer choose. Right. So, but, but you're totally right. The first floor is where you are going to get your max rent. And then the second you have to get into an elevator. Now you're discounting those units because somebody wants to get access super fast. Yeah. one of the things that we do is when someone's coming to rent, they say, Hey, I want a 10 by 10 unit. And we have 10 by tens on all three floors and you say, okay, what do you want? Do you want the good, the better, the best, you know, the best is going to be your unit that's closest to the office right on the front door, but that's going to come with a, a premium on price. Yep. And your good is going to be the third floor, although in the back corner unit, and we let them decide. And what we found is when you offer a customer three options to choose from, instead of saying, here's the rate for a 10 by 10, 40% will choose either the better or the best rate as opposed to going with the cheapest route that they have.
1: That's good. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Cool, oh, man, what are we missing here on storage? It's like, why isn't everybody and their grandmother doing this?
0: Yeah, I think it really comes down to it's the new sexy asset. You know, 10 years ago, this was one of those things where nobody would get caught, you know, telling their large investment managers or their their family offices that they were going to invest in this. And that's just because everyone had the old school concept of what storage was, you know, these gravel plots with long rows of metal buildings that are all banged up. But that's not what it's like anymore these three-story buildings you build, they look like class A office buildings. They're beautiful. Yeah. They sexy. they look great. They're, yeah. they're they're sexy. Right. And then all of a sudden you kind of had this converging of not only the multifamily realm being extremely aggregated, where like now the cop, top couple investing arms own like the majority of multifamily that's worth investing in, in the United States. But at the same time, the layperson started finding out how good the returns from storage were because Money Magazine wrote an article on it. Fortune wrote an article yeah. on it. So now all of a sudden, that's not this ugly step trial that used to trade at 15% cap rates. Now it's this class A asset alternative that everyone wants to get involved in and sure. REITs are trading at 4 to 5% cap rates. Yep.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. I, I love it, man. Yeah, I need to get into it myself. What is the first thing that you would recommend for somebody like myself to get into? So
0: this is what I usually tell people, if you already have a really good real estate background and you understand just commercial real estate in general, I think you can go at it on your own or you know, partner up with somebody in a co-GP type of role where you can offer, say, things that they may need, but that aren't necessarily self-storage specific. Like maybe you have great debt relationships or equity investors that have interests that you can bring to the table, they'll invest in this type of stuff. Maybe you have a big purse that you can front the risk capital. Mm Because usually on these development deals, you know, we're fronting anywhere between 350 to 400 K before we even close on the construction loan. you know, just doing all the due diligence, our architecture plan, stuff like that. If you're someone that has no experience in real estate, the very first thing I'd recommend is get educated extremely. It's going to be a longer process to get to your first facility, but at least you'll know what you're doing. So I always recommend, you know, listen to a bunch of podcasts buy books on self storage go take the classes there's a, there's a bunch of people that offer self storage education join a mastermind if you can if you can find one that's near you you know these are the things that I did when I went down the path I got educated first I partnered up with an investor on my first deal yeah I joined masterminds I went to the industry trade shows I'm actually I'm flying back to the United States next week just to go to speak at Inside Self Storage World Expo which is the largest self-storage conference in the world. And I remember the first year that I went there, I was like so overwhelmed, but I learned so much because they have all these education tracks that you can get up to speed really fast.
1: Wow. That's incredible, brother. I I love that. Where are you going in the future with this stuff? Like what's the goals and plans for you guys?
0: Yep. In the next 10 to 15 years, we will have a class, a portfolio of 80 to 90 facilities in the Southeast, and we will exit to a large REIT or equity fund for around 1.3 to
1: 1.5 billion dollars let's go buddy let's go i like those goals that's good not um, a lot of goals what's gonna happen yeah that's what's <laughs> happening that's not even a goal that's just that's part of the plan <laughs> right yeah. cool man well um anything that myself or the listeners could do to give back to you
0: just reach out connect you know you can, if you're more of a passive type of person you can go to our website ssse.com you can get in touch with us there If you're more of a kind of aggressive, more active type of person that likes to reach out, I'll give out my cell phone number. It's uh, area code 630-408-8090, 630-408-8090. That's my real cell phone number. Shoot me a text. I'll respond within a couple minutes. I find that the more barriers you put in front of people to to execute uh, yeah. it usually makes it harder for them. So yeah. feel free to reach out. I'm more than happy to chat with you if you got any ideas, you've got deals you're looking for, look trying to get funding or relationships or just want some more resources to learn how to do this. I'm all ears.
1: Yeah. Well, I appreciate your heart, man. I appreciate you giving your everything in this episode as well as to my listeners. It means the world to me and and I'm just excited for you, brother. You've you've been doing just crazy numbers here. It's impressive and something definitely, you know, commendable to you. So uh, keep it up. Uh, I love, like I said, like you mentioned, it's not a goal. It's a plan. It's in stepping stones right now. So keep it up, brother. If there's anything that myself or or we can do for you, we'll be doing that. And guys, you heard it here first. Make sure you reach out to Fernando. He's a gangster in the space of storage and just an incredible individual you're going to definitely want to network with. And any other way, any social media or anything that people could? Yeah.
0: Yeah, see, so if you go, you can follow us. We we put out a bunch of free education, like three, four times a day, on cool. everything in self storage: how to find it, market for it, buy it, creative structuring, management, capital raising. Love so you can go to either Triple SE, which is S S S E, or just self storage syndicated equities across all the social media channels. You'll find us if you'd like to follow me personally. All my social media handles is at the Storage Stud. Uh, yeah. you can find all my personal stuff as well. I usually just repost a lot of stuff from our, our company page as well. So you'll you'll find a bunch of education there too. Cool.
1: I love that. Well, guys, reach out to, to Fernando and and uh, everything that he's got going on. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on Instagram. It is Brandon Elliott Investments, otherwise Facebook.com forward slash Brandon Elliott Investor. And then if you're looking to get truly educated on flipping the script on the banks. I'm talking like literally getting as much funding from these banks as possible. We help business owners get up to $500,000 every six months at 0% interest, travel hacking, fixing credit, boosting up your score to the 800 club and staying there in 30 days or less. And so, so much more actually buying real estate with credit. If you're looking to understand that more then check out creditcounselelite.com. That's www.creditcounselelite.com. There's a 10-minute video there. You can fill out a questionnaire afterwards so we can understand more about your situation and then sit down with either myself or someone on our Credit Council Elite team to be able to go over more of your situation, see if it's a good fit and how we can best serve you. And if you have not already, hit that darn subscribe button. Make sure you do that right here, right now. Before you go, hit that subscribe button to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. You'll get the newest notification every single Monday. We will see you on the next episode. Leave that five-star review. As always, love you guys all tremendously. You guys have a blessed week and we'll see you next time. Fernando, again, you are the man. Uh, Appreciate your time today, brother. Thank you. Appreciate you, Brandon. Thanks.
0: This has been another episode of Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below.
1: Thanks again for joining. Until next time, God bless.